Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. We are great at excuses. There's always something that can explain why we do what we do or that keeps us from doing something new, especially if it is something important or risky or unexpected. Like that awkward time in middle school when a girl finally approached me and asked me out, but I was so panicky and uncertain, so frightened of my own clumsiness, inexperience, and braces that all I could mutter to escape the flushed cheeks and shock of it all was, my mom says I can't date until I'm 30. Moses is about to go back to Egypt. He's about to return to his homeland, the enslaved Hebrew people he was born to and the privileged palace community he was raised in. He's about to confront the most powerful person in his world, maybe the entire world. He's about to risk his life on an impossible journey of freedom. He is about to change the world. And all of this, all of this happens suddenly in the flame of a burning bush. So it's no shock, really, that, that Moses does what most of us do when we're faced with something unexpected important, risky, and new. He makes excuses. Now, it doesn't start off like this. It never does, right? In chapter three, Moses sees a burning bush, removes his sandals, and responds to the voice that says, Moses, Moses. Moses throws his heart and spirit open with those greatest of spiritual words that will echo throughout scripture. Here I am. But then God says, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries. I know their suffering. So I'm sending you to go to them. Yeah, about that, God. So, you know, you know, I would never oppress people like that. In fact, one time I even stood up for one of those poor souls. But listen, tackling a whole system of oppression. Yeah, that's uh, it's not really something I'm up for. Not really something I could even do. Yes, the objections begin first with who am I? Second, wait. Who are you exactly? Third, well, before we get to the third, let's read the third, fourth, and fifth objections. These great and timeless excuses from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Join me. Join me in the stories I read. Then Moses answered, but suppose they, that is the Hebrew people who Moses is supposed to help organize and who Moses is supposed to tell that God has sent him to free them. Suppose the Hebrew people do not believe me or listen to me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So so Moses reached out his hand and grasped it and it became a staff in his hand so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hands inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, his hand was leprous as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never, never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I'm I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, 
Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But the, but Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and, and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The gods of Egypt are in control. Or so the story goes if you want to keep, keep people oppressed, if you want to keep people exploited. Don't let them know their own power. Don't let them know their own potential, their own possibility. Sell the Hebrews a story of defeat so there's no struggle, no attempt, no hope for a better life, for a better future. That's how the story always goes for oppressed communities. The people who benefit spin stories that keep people in control and that keep them on top. Religious stories even. Religious stories like there are far more powerful forces than you who, will, who are going to keep things the way they are, who have made things the way they are. When Moses, when Moses makes his third objection, his third excuse to God about why this whole thing won't work, he says in effect, but what if no one, what if no one believes me? What if no one believes in any of this? No, if no one can believe me. And God reminds him, this isn't about you, Moses. This is about what is true. It is about what is really real. It is about who I am and who my people truly are. It's easy to get distracted in this story. It's easy to get distracted by snakes and leprosy and blood water. It's easy to seize the, see these as fantastical miracles that are just a, a, a sales gimmick, simply meant for the ooh and awe effect or to frighten people into submission to Moses' leadership and God's command. But that's not what this story is about. These, these aren't random show tricks. God isn't like, hmm, yeah, good point, Moses. Uh, let's see, what can we do? What can we do? Yes, your staff. Let's really jazz it up with a snake effect. That'll grab their attention. No, snakes aren't some random thing. No, snakes are important. They matter. They're chosen specifically. God gives Moses a new story for the Hebrew people to experience. A story that might catalyze them to seek freedom. You see, the story they had before, that story is that, is that Egypt was in control, that Egypt was powerful. But the new story, the one that God wants to give them, is that Egypt isn't as powerful as you've been led to believe. Egypt isn't powerful enough to keep you oppressed, to keep you enslaved, to keep you from a new and better life. 
I remember an art project I made in middle school. Yes, going back to middle school this week, I guess. Uh, I, it was an art project uh, using paper mache. I meticulously crafted an Egyptian headdress. Perhaps you've seen a picture of one of these uh, headdresses for the pharaohs. It's a blue striped cloth crown that drapes around the head of an Egyptian god or a pharaoh. And importantly, on the forehead is a snake, a cobra. And if, in fact, the cloth headdress makes the pharaoh himself look like a cobra when he wears it. Snakes are symbols of Egyptian royal and religious power. God doesn't turn the staff into a snake because they are both long and cylindrical, kind of look the same if they're still. It's just a mere coincidence that makes for a great show. No, God wants Moses and the people to know that the snakes aren't invincible. They can be handled. Perhaps the miracle is not that the staff turns into the snake. Humans have long invested everyday things with supernatural power and significance. So, I mean, that's, that's nothing new. But, but what if the miracle is actually that the snake turns back into a staff when Moses grabs it? When we see the symbolism of the snake, we see that Moses and thus the Hebrew people can stop running from their fear of snake power, of Egyptian control and dominance. The Egyptians had made their very human control, their racist power over the Hebrew people seem like it was invincible, God-ordained, unbreakable dominance. That's, that's how racism and supremacy work, by giving it the force of the way things are, what, what's really real, and there's nothing you can do about it. But Moses and the Hebrew people do have the power to do something about it. God gives them a sign, a sign encouraging them to reach and discover there's no snake there after all. And if there's no snake power to fear, well, why are we enslaved again? The same thing is going on with the blood and water from the Nile. The Nile is the life source of Egypt. It's the end wealth. And without the Nile, there is no Egypt, which is why one of the gods in the Egyptian religion, Hopi, is the god of the Nile. Do you remember what happened at the beginning of Exodus? Do you recall how the Pharaoh kicks off his campaign to control and dominate the Hebrews with a racist decree to throw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile? In a way, the Pharaoh has already turned the Nile into blood with the sacrifice of these children for Egyptian national security and for their economic wealth and their social dominance. So what does God do? He gives Moses a sign to share with the Hebrew people. The God Hopi is not in control. I am. And God exposes the Nile for what it is, a river running with the blood of people who have been crushed and destroyed. In a way, God acknowledges the past of the Hebrew people, exposes it for the tragedy and injustice that it is, and signals that the power that made it so is not a power that is invincible, indestructible, and unbreakable. These are powerful signs. Meant, they're meant to demystify Egyptian power and create courage in the Hebrew people, including Moses. And Moses responds with more excuses. Yeah, well, that's great, God, but you know, I'm not so great with words. God reminds Moses that he is actually good enough with words because God is the creator of all that is, from words to worlds. Finally, Moses is cornered with no real excuse left but the truth. What he really wants is for God just to send someone else. Yeah, we've come a long way from the Moses who boldly declared, here I am, fully available to God, to now asking, just send somebody else, God. Please, can you just send somebody else? So God gets angry. And let's remember, God... 
God hears the cry of hurting, suffering people. God is not some unmoved mover, some abstract principle. No, God is invested in the cause of those who suffer. God is the most moved mover, the one who suffers with us. God enfleshed in Jesus Christ chooses to suffer with human beings even unto death, even unto unjust, cruel death on a cross. So yes, God's invested in the ones who suffer, so God gets angry because the suffering of the Hebrew people hurts God. God gets angry that Moses doesn't see in himself what God does, a leader, someone with the strength to stand up to Pharaoh, someone who can connect with the Hebrew people and organize them, and also someone who knows the palace system and can secure an audience with the Pharaoh. Now, God is angry that Moses is making this all about himself and not about the people who are suffering in Egypt. God is angry, and God is also undeterred. God doesn't storm off. Even angry, God is merciful. Even angry, God is kind. Even angry, God is creative. Enter Aaron. He'll be your mouthpiece, Moses. And now Moses go. well, no, no, not quite yet. He's got one more shot to get out of this. Moses goes back to his father-in-law and in this clever move asks to leave. Asks to leave. Almost as if he's giving that nod and wink like, you know, you can say no. Please say no. If you say no, <laughs> you know, I'm okay with that. You know, it wouldn't be Moses' fault if Jethro says no. But Jethro doesn't say no. He supports Moses. No more excuses left. Now Moses must go. And Moses does go. Moses goes as each of us goes with everything we already need. The God of the universe with us. The gifts of our personalities, our past experiences, and our acquired skills. All which can serve those in need and confront powers that might seem invincible to overcome. Moses goes as each of us goes with a bigger community to lean on, a bigger bigger one than we can remember or realize or even anticipate with brothers and sisters in faith who can speak, think, and help us on the journey of faith. Moses goes as each of us goes with stories and signs that remind us all we fear is not as scary or impossible as we've been led to believe. God's mercy, God's justice, God's new life are the most powerful. They are what are really real. Moses goes as each of us goes to return, to return to ourselves. And Moses goes to return to the racial oppression he ran from. He returns from his individual freedom and comfort as a shepherd in Midian. He returns to the great struggle for real freedom, which is never an individual freedom, but always a shared freedom. Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.